This week on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show, it is Thanksgiving week, and just ahead we'll tell you if it's okay to cook that years-old frozen turkey that you just found in your deep freeze. We also head to Parma with Idaho Preferred and meet a young family farming mushrooms of all things, and we introduce a new feature on the program, hearing from Idaho's elected leaders. And of course, Paul Marchant will tell us about a grand opportunity in the latest Irons in the Fire. I'm Neil Larson. Welcome to today's program. Our news is just ahead. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. The American Farm Bureau Federation released its annual survey on the cost of a typical Thanksgiving Day meal. Chad Smith has more on what consumers can expect to pay for this week's holiday feast. The cost of a traditional Thanksgiving Day meal for 10 people is higher in 2022. Roger Cryan, chief economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation, talks about this year's survey results. So the survey showed this year that the traditional Thanksgiving basket served 10 people, worked out to about $64. That's about six fifty per person. But it was about 20% above last year and about um, 36% over two years ago, which we recognize is a real burden for some folks. Cryan said, there are several factors driving up the cost this year. Part of the increases have come from general inflation, which is a real burden on everybody for everything. Part of it has come from some of the challenges in the food supply chain, including the disruption of war around the world and difficulties of just meeting a rising demand in a recovering world economy. But it is still wonderful to live in a country where Thanksgiving supper like that is relatively affordable, and we give our thanks every year for this. However, if you're looking to save a bit of money on the meal, there are things shoppers can do at the grocery store. Every year there are opportunities to save save money by comparison shopping. There's a range of results in our survey. There could be a relatively wide range of these. I would say that shopping late for your turkey can sometimes get you a pretty good deal, although you want to make sure that you don't get a frozen turkey too close to Thanksgiving so that you can't get it thawed before it's time to cook. Learn more at fb.org. Chad Smith, Washington. Can a turkey that's been frozen for years still be safe to cook and eat? Gary Crawford has more with Meredith Carruthers with USDA's Meat and Poultry Hotline. The place, the cold wasteland of your deep freeze sound effects extra. You're doing a dig into the bottommost depths and you discover... A perfectly preserved specimen of Meligrinios Garapavo. Yes, a frozen turkey, apparently undisturbed for years. Has this ever happened to you? (laughs) Yes. Yes, Meredith Carruthers, she's a food safety expert with the Agriculture Department's Meat and Poultry Hotline. Indeed, she says they get a few calls this time of year from people who have unearthed ancient turkeys in their freezers, and they want to know, is this thing safe to eat? Yes, it's definitely safe because foodborne illness bacteria don't grow in the freezer. The only thing that changes is the quality might diminish the longer that it's frozen for. And the record length called into the hotline five years in the freezer. Did they use that thing? Yes, they called us back and told us that it was delicious, which is incredible. Indeed. For answers to your holiday food questions, call the incredible folks at the Meat and Poultry Hotline. Here's the number 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. By the way, that Meat and Poultry Hotline number is 888-MP-HOTLINE if you have any questions at all. While control of the next Congress has yet to be decided, farmers and ranchers still need lawmakers to address several priorities. Michael Clements tells us what the lame duck Congress can do for rural America. 
The American Farm Bureau Federation has a few priorities for Congress to consider during the lame duck session. Ryan Yates, AFBF Managing Director of Government Affairs, says there are some must-pass items for lawmakers to address. They need to address funding the government. They're currently operating under a continuing resolution. An item that may be considered is whether or not Congress includes additional disaster funding in that appropriations request. The second kind of must-pass thing is WERDA, the Water Rights Development Act. So WERDA is a two-year bill. Congress uh, currently is looking at passing the National Defense Authorization Act, and all fingers point to the inclusion of WERDA in the defense bill. Other priorities include labor and climate bills. The House of Representatives did pass the Workforce Modernization Act. The Senate is looking at whether or not it can tackle a modified version of that labor bill. The other item on the agenda could include House passage of the Growing Climate Solutions Act. Beyond that, we've got two trade nominees, both of which have moved out of committee in the Senate, and both are up for final vote for confirmation. Yates adds bipartisan efforts will be key to the lame duck session and the next session of Congress. Following the elections last week, we had a divided country and a divided Congress, and ultimately we will remain a divided Congress. But what that identifies is the need for bipartisan support for getting things done. Not only in the lame duck, but when Congress returns, the need for bipartisanship will remain critical. As it pertains to the lame duck, we are hopeful that Congress can tackle these remaining agricultural priorities, and we will work with Congress to encourage them to get their job done before they come home. Michael Clements, Washington. Well, more than 200 people attended Idaho's first ever statewide conference dedicated to farm stress. In a piece by Sean Ellis with the Idaho Farm Bureau Federation, the inaugural Idaho Farm and Ranch Conference was held October 24th and 25th in Boise, and it included a host of discussions and presentations centered around farm stress and financial management. The first day included panel discussions and presentations on topics such as improving farm management strategies, taxes on the farm, marketing, accrual accounting, and farm transition and estate planning. The second day was dedicated to discussing farm stress, mental health, and the high suicide rate among ag producers. Idaho State Department of Ag Director Celia Gould, a rancher and farmer, told participants that national studies show farmers die by suicide at a rate several times the national average, and one of the keys to reducing that rate is openly discussing the issue and the factors that lead to it, according to Gould. Now, if you'd like to read the rest of this story, just go to idahofb.org and search for it in their news section. Well, what are the prospects for dairy operators in 2023? Gary Crawford has the answer, along with USDA Outlook Chairman Mark Jekinowski. In their forecast for U.S. milk production next year, USDA analysts currently expect 2023 milk output to be up about 2.2 billion pounds. Up from this current year. This from USDA Outlook Chairman Mark Jekinowski. He pegs 2023 milk production at just over 229 billion pounds. That would be a little under 1% above this year. What Mark calls then a normal trend increase. Producers are expected to see lower prices for their milk next year. One, because there will be more of it, but also due to some general softening of most product prices. USDA projecting cheese prices to drop by 6%, butter 13 non-fat dry milk 16%, sending milk prices down. The all-milk price forecast now at 22.60 a hundredweight and compared to this year that would be a reduction of $2.90 per hundredweight. Or about 11%. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Well, we're pleased to announce the addition of a new exclusive feature on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Each week, we'll hear from one of Idaho's elected leaders. And our debut 
comes from U.S. Senator Mike Crapo, weighing in on the United States policy on sugar. America's sugar farmers and workers help provide the United States with an ample supply of high-quality, affordable sugar, grown and produced under some of the world's most rigorous environmental and labor standards. This fall, I joined a bipartisan group of 12 senators in a letter urging the United States Department of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack to reject proposals that would weaken U.S. sugar policy and jeopardize our nation's food security. Farmers need strong federal farm policies. The stakes have never been higher. For decades, sugar supplies have met domestic demand through sugar beet and sugar cane production. Rising input costs, especially for fertilizer and diesel fuel, have significantly increased the cost of production for our sugar growers. Despite these current challenges, thanks to U.S. sugar policy, our sugar supply chain remains resilient and in a strong position to address future challenges. Our letter points out it is imperative that the USDA not make changes that would create a glut in the U.S. market and collapse prices below grower costs of production, which would violate the spirit of U.S. sugar policy and ultimately drive family farmers out of business. In our letter, we urge Secretary Vilsack to reject requests that undermine U.S. sugar policy and our nation's food security, while putting thousands of American jobs at risk. How long will the current decline in beef cattle numbers continue, and are there any signs of an upturn? Gary Crawford has more with USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer. For the last few months, all signs in the beef cattle industry have been pointing to a downturn in the cattle cycle as producers have been selling more cattle than normal earlier than normal, reducing cattle supplies and beef production prospects into 2023. My question is, is how do we look at that for a continued decline longer run? Or are there signs of maybe a turnaround in the cycle? If so, when? USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer is certainly looking for any clues on that. He told us that right now... We continue to have poor forage conditions in the West, high feed costs. So I'm continuing to watch cow slaughter, continuing to even look at anecdotal price information for heifers, just looking there to say, when are we when are we going to maybe turn this? We'll have some new information on this very shortly when USDA releases its new report on cattle feedlot placements, marketings, and inventories. That report coming out this Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Retailers in fuel markets interested in USDA grants to construct and improve infrastructure for higher blends of ethanol have until November 21st to submit their applications. Here's Rod Bain with the details. Coming up Monday, the deadline for interested parties to apply for USDA's Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program. I noticed my email box has been getting a lot more questions on how to complete these applications. Ron Lamberty of the American Coalition for Ethanol says those requests for application assistance come from retailers and fuel marketers. Grants of $100 million are available to increase the sale and use of agricultural-based biofuels by consumers. Funding from HPIP will also support fleet facilities. Additional federal investment in ag-based biofuel production and consumption is expected via $500 million in the Inflation Reduction Act. According to Growth Energy's Chris Bliley, USDA is actually working on getting feedback on how they intend to use that $500 million. From the National Association of Farm Broadcasting Convention in Kansas City, I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
The USDA has just unveiled a package of proposed changes to its special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children, otherwise known as WIC. Here's Gary Crawford. This is a good day for women, infants, and children who are our future. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack Thursday unveiling a package of proposed changes to the USDA's Women, Infants, and Children's program, otherwise known as WIC. Changes, Vilsack says, are focused on increasing flexibility in the program. For example, expanding the amounts and types of fruits and vegetables that participants can buy, adding foods never before available, and in several package sizes. And there are many more proposed changes aimed at making sure that the program has enough flexibility that regardless of your circumstance or situation, you can participate. Even if you have special dietary needs, USDA Deputy Undersecretary Stacy Dean says along that line, We intend to provide more non-dairy alternatives to milk to support special dietary requirements. Some dairy groups have come out against that change, but Vilsack says... What we're trying to do is to make sure that those people who don't tolerate dairy as well are given the option of still having yogurt, uh, for example. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Well, Idaho's wine grape growing season got off to a late start this year because of a cool, wet spring. But warm summer temperatures that lasted into late fall resulted in a strong finish. This piece by Sean Ellis with the Idaho Farm Bureau... Caldwell winemaker Martin Fujishin, over owner of a family seller's business, said it's been a very good year, and he's pleased with how things came in. Yields were definitely up. Idaho's grape growing season was delayed because of the spring, but warm temperatures that lasted through much of October helped the fruit continue to ripen. According to Wine Commission Executive Director Moya Schatz-Dolsby, that resulted in higher-than-average yields. She said she said it's going to be a great vintage and the harvest is great, even though most of the southern Idaho experienced a very hot summer. The weather was consistent for much of the growing season and the state's typical cool nights helped, according to Schatz Dolsby. Now, if you'd like to read the rest of this story, just go to IdahoFB.org. Well, in our next segment, Gary Crawford reports on the U.N.'s Climate Change Conference and a look at the various benefits of agritourism on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Hey, thank you for making the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show a part of your week. Stay updated throughout the week at IdahoFarmNet.com. There you can subscribe to our podcast in case you missed part of the show, or you can catch the latest news from the USDA, Idaho Farm Bureau, Capital Press, and other groups that we've partnered with. You can connect with us on social media there as well. And if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Again, you can reach us at IdahoFarmNet.com. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. Catch this and previous episodes on podcast by going to IdahoFarmNet.com. On this edition of Agriculture USA, Gary Crawford reports on the UN's Climate Change Conference. We're already seeing the devastating impacts of a changing climate across the world. An unprecedented fifth consecutive rainy season has failed in the Horn of Africa. We see our mission to avert climate catastrophe not only as an imperative for our present and future, but through the eyes of history. Voices from the United Nations COP27 climate meeting in Egypt, a meeting partly to assess the general threats of climate change to food production and global security, a meeting about finding ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the world's farms while producing more food for more people. Coming up, 
a few choice bits from a huge two-week climate meeting on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. Climate change is projected to reduce growth in global agriculture yields by as much as 5 and in some cases 30 percent by the year 2050. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack told the COP27 conference that is the projection if there are no successful programs to slow down and eventually stop climate change and if there are no effective climate change mitigation and adaptation programs to help farmers cope with climate change and to help reduce emissions of greenhouse gases from their farms. This, of course, sets up quite a challenge. We must fundamentally change food systems to produce more while emitting less. That's Samantha Power. She runs the U.S. Agency for International Development, and she told the conference, Today, feeding the world emits nearly a third of all greenhouse gases, a number only set to rise as the global population approaches 10 billion. But Power says there are already many projects going on to reduce emissions from farms. Take production of rice, for example. The flooding required to grow rice produces methane a climate pollutant 30 times more powerful than carbon dioxide, making rice cultivation one of agriculture's largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. However, Samantha says researchers have developed new rice varieties and new rice planting techniques that can reduce the need to flood the soil, saving water and reducing methane emissions by at least 30 percent. She says they've proven that in pilot tests. It is a question of scaling it. Of course, that may take considerable resources to put into general use. And Agriculture Secretary Vilsack says oftentimes the countries whose agriculture is most vulnerable to climate change are the ones least able to do anything about it. That's one of the reasons why President Biden established the Emergency Plan for Adaptation and Resilience, which we know as PREPARE to help more than a half a billion people in developing countries respond to climate change. President Joe Biden told the conference he's asking Congress for $2 billion for the PREPARE program. Meanwhile... Today, as a down payment, we're announcing more than $150 million in initiatives that specifically support PREPARE's adaptation efforts throughout Africa. And Africa is going to need all the help it can get. As you heard earlier, Samantha Power had some grim news for the conference. We have just recently received word that an unprecedented fifth consecutive rainy season has failed in the Horn of Africa. Causing an already disastrous hunger situation to get much worse. Already 21 million people across that region face crisis levels of hunger. I visited Somalia and heard from farmers whose crops and livestock had shriveled, mothers who had traveled long distances to bring their children to malnutrition clinics, babies just a few months old born into hunger and too weak to cry. She says the cause, of course, or one of them, is obvious. This food crisis, like so many others, finds its roots in climate change which has dried out soils and plants and shifted rainfall patterns all around the world. And so... At this gathering, we must renew and raise our climate ambitions. President Biden telling the conference... The United States is acting. Everyone has to act. It's a duty and responsibility of global leadership. Countries that are in a position to help should be supporting developing countries so they can make decisive climate decisions, facilitating their energy transitions building a path to prosperity and 
compatible with our climate imperative. If countries can finance coal in developing countries, there's no reason why we can't finance clean energy in developing countries. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How might an agritourism operator and their customers benefit from the form of agribusiness? Rod Bain has the answer in this report. There are several reasons ag producers decide to enter into agritourism. Yet as Oregon State University Extension's Audrey Cumberford explains, benefits also greatly vary both for the business owner and operator and their customers. From the economic perspective, it may allow the farms to charge a higher price for their farm products. As we know, it's not getting easier to be a farmer. Engaging directly with customers to promote the sale of product, that's another positive benefit. It may improve farm viability by adding additional revenue stream. Especially as margins in agriculture become tighter. Maybe having an open farm day or two throughout your season. Maybe that extra income from that or small events or classes, those extra couple thousand dollars may mean the huge difference between whether you make it to the next year or not for some of these operations. In addition, it can also allow the farmer ranch to employ additional family members or maybe even a community member on the farm, either part or full time. Agritourism can also aid in farm succession. Where the second third or fourth or even fifth generation to that farm maybe is looking to put their own spin on it. And by adding these direct consumer sales or on-farm events, it lets them carve out a niche in their family business. As the COVID-19 pandemic demonstrated, agritourism provides a relationship-building opportunity with local communities. Folks were looking either to get out of the house, connect with their local food systems. And so while that community relationship-building has always been there, we thought strengthen a lot during the pandemic. Several agritourism operations are not operated as a business by the farm owner, but rather to educate the public about agriculture. There's a larger disconnect between what happens on farmland, how food and fiber is grown and processed, and what the public knows or perceives. And so these farms that open up to the public really provide that educational piece about what goes on in our agriculture sectors here in the U.S. Cumberford says even with the educational component of agritourism as a sole focus, there still could be an indirect residual effect for the business side of such an operation. Even using it as a marketing so later on these folks then think about the farm and will maybe buy their product from them rather than someone else. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Coming up, the truth about Thanksgiving. And we'll take you to Parma where a young farming family is raising mushrooms on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Hey, thank you for making the Idaho Farm and Ranch show a part of your week. Stay updated throughout the week at IdahoFarmNet.com. There you can subscribe to our podcast in case you missed part of the show, or you can catch the latest news from the USDA, Idaho Farm Bureau, Capital Press, and other groups that we've partnered with. You can connect with us on social media there as well. And if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Again, you can reach us at IdahoFarmNet.com.
Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. I'm Neil Larson. Catch this and previous episodes on podcast by going to IdahoFarmNet.com. Well, don't listen to this next report unless you want to hear the unexpurgated truth about Thanksgiving. Gary Crawford has the hard-hitting story. Yes, it's that time again, as Winnie the Pooh says... Hooray, hooray, today is the day to give thanks for giving and give thanks away. Ah, but of course, Pooh's friend Rabbit knows all about Thanksgiving, so please explain it to us. You see, Thanksgiving is about tradition and custom, habit and routine, defined and refined over many long years. Oh, it's about grand dinners. Ah, yes, yes, and it's also about that traditional... Come on! Dallas football game, yes. And in fact, at that first so-called Thanksgiving in this country with the Pilgrims and Indians... There were contests and races and other kinds of things. So in addition to the food, there was also a tradition of athletic events, I guess you could say, if you want to draw this together to the football tradition. That's Anne Efland. She's an historical expert with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, I used to think I knew everything about Thanksgiving, just like Rabbit, until I met Anne. Now, most of us know that the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. And by 1621, they had a harvest to celebrate, um, but only because of the nearby Indians, the Wampanoags. Now, that's fairly common knowledge, but I did not know and had often wondered how the Pilgrims and Indians had been able to communicate. Well, Anne says it turns out that, yes, you had the Indian tribe there. Who happened to have a couple of tribe members who who had um, been to England and knew English and befriended them. A colossal coincidence that probably saved the Pilgrims from being wiped out that first winter. So you've got the Native Americans lending a vital helping hand to the Pilgrims. So they were taught to plant corn and squash and pumpkins. So that first celebration, when they had uh, been able to grow enough, they knew they would have enough for the winter. They invited the nearby Indians who had been so important to their planting to join in a celebration of the harvest. However, at that first Thanksgiving, there's no direct evidence that they actually ate... Turkey. At that celebration, one pilgrim did keep a journal that says they had gone out to shoot wild fowl. So it's not absolutely certain that they had turkey, but they certainly might have. One other misconception many of us have is that from that day on, we celebrated a yearly Thanksgiving Day in this country, and Anne Eflin says no, not at all. It was an on and off thing, mostly off, done at various times in different regions. And finally, some 200 years after that first celebration. There had been a movement led by a woman, uh, Sarah Josepha Hale, who was the editor of a popular ladies magazine who was leading a movement for a national holiday. And finally, Mrs. Hale's 40-year campaign bore fruit, and Abraham Lincoln in 1863 declared the last Thursday in November as a national Thanksgiving Day, a celebration of home, hearth, and food. And of course, we later added football, of course. And for all of it, we are thankful. Right, Pooh? Hooray, hooray, today. In Washington, Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks for Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving Day. This week, Idaho Preferred takes us to Groves Country Farms in Parma, where the Groves family is busy raising mushrooms. Well, I got started gr- growing mushrooms because uh, I really wanted to get out of my real job. I've been a commercial fisherman for uh, my whole working career, and I started having kids and being married and couldn't be away for four to six months out of the year, so I decided I need to do something different. I wanted to be in agriculture. My grandpa is a farmer, my dad is a farmer, so I uh, asked my grandpa how I could 
bridge my way into ag and, and he suggested mushrooms because it was something I could grow in the winter time and still keep my fishing job. When Mason and I first got married we knew we didn't want normal, we didn't want the nine to five, we didn't want to work for anybody and uh, mushrooms wasn't necessarily anything that we could have guessed but it's everything that we knew we wanted. Well it helped that I didn't know how to grow any uh, plants to begin with so growing mushrooms I didn't have to relearn anything I just uh, had a lot of time on fishing boats to read books and uh, I did a lot of trial and error. So we started in our garage. Um, it was very small scale. It was tarps hung up in different precarious ways, foggers, heaters, all sorts of things. He kept stealing all my humidifiers for the kids and it drove me crazy. Um, he broke my diffuser. I remember being so frustrated about those things, but it was all for this dream he had of learning to grow mushrooms. Once you understand the life cycle of a mushroom, you can kind of uh, decide how you're going to build your business around that. Every, uh, every container has a, has a purpose and you start in one container to make your manufactured logs, which are the actual logs without the mushrooms. And um, we take sawdust and put it in bags. We add the perfect amount of moisture to that. We have to pasteurize that substrate and then we'll introduce mushroom culture once the sawdust is all clean. That, that uh, mushroom culture will spread throughout the substrate there and it will consume all the available nutrients and then once it's consumed all the nutrients that it's going to consume we will introduce it to oxygen and it will produce mushrooms at that point. We grow a lot of different mushrooms and it changes with the season. Um, when the warmer months we'll grow warmer weather variety mushrooms and the colder months we'll grow colder weather but uh, right now we are growing a little bit of king trumpet, some black king, we always grow blue oyster and shiitake, and we always grow lion's mane. One thing I hear a lot about mushrooms are a lot of intimidated people that don't know how to cook them. So something I always say, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than any button mushroom you would buy at the grocery store. You can take them home. If you're already planning a meal, mushrooms can likely go in it. You can saute them with butter or olive oil on the stove and throw them on top or into whatever you're already cooking. And then you can also get creative. A lot of people make crab cakes um, with our lion's mane mushrooms. We have attended a dinner before where a wonderful chef that we work with actually uh, sliced the stem of a king mushroom, a king trumpet mushroom, and cooked them as if they were scallops. And they were fantastic. You would have never known the difference. So there's a lot of creative things you can do with mushrooms or you can keep them very simple, saute them in butter and throw them into anything. The whole reason that I got into this business was for the quality of life. Um, it's Farming is, is not something, especially on a small scale like this, this is not something where you go out and you make a bunch of money and, and you bring home a whole lot of cash to the family. This is a seven day a week lifestyle and I get to be with my family every day. I get to bring my kids to work with me every day. It goes hand in hand with the local food movement, with the health movement and the desire to have better tasting food, not just fuel for the body that has introduced a lot of really amazing mushrooms. By the way, if you'd like to see the video version of this story, search for Idaho Preferred's channel on YouTube. Two new partnerships with USDA's Risk Management Agency and public entities are designed to boost crop insurance education and outreach among underserved communities. Here's Rod Bain with more.
among USDA risk management agency efforts in educating crop insurance agents, adjusters, and policyholders. RMA has invested $3.19 million since 2021. And those dollars involve partnerships with 25 projects across the country. Now RMA Administrator Marsha Bunger says additional investment has been made in the educational outreach realm with an emphasis on underserved communities. $3.3 million investment for these two partnerships, the Southern Risk Management Education Center at the University of Arkansas. The second is the partnership with the Intertribal Ag Council. Both partnerships are designed to train the next generation of crop insurance agents, adjusters, and outreach educators, especially those serving underserved, specialty crop, organic, and small-scale producers. First, explaining the partnership with the Southern Risk Management Education Center. That one we are tagging with the name of The Navigator. Through the University of Arkansas, this project is going to be an ongoing collaboration with Extension Risk Management Education, 1890 Small Farm Programs, Extension Service, and different land-grant universities. And this is going to hopefully provide much-needed education around the basics of crop insurance. The Intertribal Agricultural Council will serve as the principal partner with RMA in another outreach project. They will be, along with three other partners, rolling out the Building Resiliency Project to identify individuals who are interested in becoming an agent or a loss adjuster. This program will help them through the licensing aspects of attaining the crop insurance license in their respective states. It will also provide the necessary education to learn how to become a crop insurance agent, loss adjuster. Additional information and education about crop insurance options for producers in general and underserved communities specifically is available through a new virtual roadshow. A session will be held December 13th at www.rma.usda.gov's Outreach and Education webpage. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In our final segment, some final thawing tips for getting that turkey ready for the oven or fryer. And Paul Marchant highlights a grand opportunity when he closes out the program on Irons in the Fire, just ahead on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Hey, thank you for making the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show a part of your week. Stay updated throughout the week at IdahoFarmNet.com. There you can subscribe to our podcast in case you missed part of the show, or you can catch the latest news from the USDA, Idaho Farm Bureau, Capital Press, and other groups that we've partnered with. You can connect with us on social media there as well. And if you have a question or comment, we'd love to hear from you. Again, you can reach us at IdahoFarmNet.com. Welcome back to the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show. Catch this and previous episodes on podcast by going to IdahoFarmNet.com. Here are some thawing tips that can save time and trouble when you're readying a frozen turkey for Thanksgiving. Here's Gary Crawford with more. It supposedly was famed ancient Roman soldier and leader Julius Caesar who said, Vini Vidi Vici, which means, another fanfare please, come on. 
that's better. I came, I saw, I conquered. But at Thanksgiving turkey time, it's usually I came, I thawed, I cooked it. But that is indeed the trouble with buying a frozen turkey, that thawing process, getting the bird on the table when people are ready to eat it. As to the thawing procedure, we asked the expert, in this case, Meredith Carruthers. She's with the Agriculture Department's Meat and Poultry Hotline, the number of which we'll give you in a moment. So, Meredith, what is the best way to defreeze that bird? Thawing in the refrigerator is going to be the safest method of thawing just because it ensures that the product that you're thawing is staying at a safe temperature throughout the entire thawing process. We really don't recommend to thaw at room temperature just because that could allow bacteria to grow that could then make you sick if consumed. So you say... Refrigerator thawing is the safest way to thaw your turkey. But it's also the longest. It'll take about 24 hours for every five pounds of turkey. So you want to do the math, ensure you're giving yourself enough days to try and get that turkey fully thawed. Days? Days? Yeah, that right. My 12-pound turkey won't be thawed for uh, three days. And for me, when it comes to cooking, my theme song always seems to be... I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. See, I've only got hours, not days, to get this turkey ready to go. Don't sweat. We have a few recommendations for you as well. Cold water is another safe way of thawing a turkey. We recommend submerging it in cold water, but then replacing that water about every 30 minutes to ensure it is, in fact, staying cold enough. And that should help thaw it a little bit quicker. Yeah, it uh, looks like it would take about 30 minutes a pound. So that's six hours for my 12-pounder. Just for the thawing, let alone the cooking. I've got to do better than that. Is there any hope for me? What can I do? You can actually cook the turkey from the frozen state. It's just going to take a little bit longer for that turkey to fully come to a safe internal temperature and be cooked and ready to eat. Yes, they say it'll take about one and a half times longer to get that internal temperature up to the 165 degrees needed to kill any bacteria in there. So instead of an approximate cooking time for my totally thawed 12-pounder of about 20 minutes a pound or four hours, the frozen bird would take about roughly six hours. Need more help with that dinner in any way, try calling the Meat and Poultry Hotline, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Or for chat, go online to ask.usda.gov. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And finally today, a special Irons in the Fire. Paul Marchant tells us about a grand opportunity. Happy fall, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. This is Paul Marchant coming at you from a cold, chilly, brisk basin east of Oakley, Idaho. It was an odd, if not downright goofy fall in south-central Idaho. Until winter hit the first week in November, we didn't truly realize that summer left. The farmers in our country have rarely been so cheerful and congenial at the end of harvest season, which arrived quite a bit earlier than normal this year. Mother Nature was incredibly cooperative. We had a few light rains, but the temperatures for the most part stayed in the high 60s to mid-70s, only dropping into the mid-40s at night. The potato and beet diggers never really stopped for a weather break, and even those with the most miserable jobs, like the clod pickers at the spud cellars, maintained unseasonably cheerful dispositions. For some of us cow folk, the balmy weather threw a few kinks into the normal routine as the cows were loath to head down to the lower country as long as the snow and the colder temperatures stayed away. That being the case, a good share of their regularly scheduled activities had to be pushed back to later dates. 
At the Martin Outfit, most of the major projects like weaning and preg checking are dependent upon the availability of a cheap and a willing workforce. All three of my sons now live within a three-hour drive of the home place, so ideally I'd love to have all of them available to help when the big cowboy project shows up on the calendar, but honestly I'm happy if I get 33%. This year none of the family, including old Ma Nature, seemed to be able to cooperate with my preferred schedule. On the weekend I'd planned to wean the lion's share of the calves, even though I still didn't have them all gathered out of the foothills. None of my boys were available to help that day. My youngest son, who hadn't had a day off from work in ages, was heading east with his schoolteacher wife for an end-of-the-semester weekend in Jackson Hole. Son number two was on weekend call with his paying job, and the oldest had planned to go south for a weekend birthday trip with his wife to Salt Lake to see what the city had to offer. He even stole my wife for a babysitter. She was happy to do some grandma duties, but that left just me to help myself, and I'm pretty mediocre help at best. On the night before my wife left, as I was lamenting my plight, it struck me that in our younger days we were never able to take a couple days off just to get away. At least we never did. We were always out on some far-flung outfit in the middle of ranch country somewhere, and I always felt that I couldn't get away. Well, that, and I never could muster up the chutzpah to ask for the time off. As hard as it is to spend time away from your own place, it may be even harder when you're in charge of someone else's outfit. My superficial self-pity led my thoughts down a more worthwhile path. First off, it forced me to look at my life's choices. I have to admit, in these times of self-reflection, I sometimes find myself stepping in the puddle of regret as I realize that maybe, or in this case, probably, I should have sometimes done things differently. No doubt my marriage and my family life could have benefited from some more time and effort given to just us. But I've since learned over the years that too much time spent in regret only leads to more regret. I figured out how to find the good in some of the choices, if not the mistakes. It's not always a bad thing to just duck your head and tap the pony with the spurs and charge through the tangle of oat brush or mahogany on the side hill. Going around in the end may not always be the best choice, even if it isn't necessarily a wrong choice. The hard times, screw-ups, and the tears as often as not, build fortitude if we allow it. I think, or at least I hope, my wife and my kids can look back and find gratitude in the rough trails we've traveled. It may have changed us, but then what's the point of living if we don't allow life to change us? As I step back and think at this time of year, I can appreciate the parallels in our nation's struggles. I'm grateful for the promise of, not the right to happiness itself, but the right to pursue happiness, the privilege to exhaust our potential in that pursuit. What a grand opportunity that is, but also what a grand responsibility it is. And I hope we can all think about that this Thanksgiving. This is Paul Marchant with another version of Irons in the Fire, wishing you the happiest of weeks and the happiest of Thanksgivings. Well, have a wonderful and safe Thanksgiving week. That wraps up our show on this very cold weekend. Stay warm and join me next weekend at the same time right here on the Idaho Farm and Ranch Show.